0: I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Second uh, Samuel, chapter seven. Second Samuel, chapter seven, if you're using uh, one of the Bibles there uh, under the seat in front of you. Uh, that's on page 259. Second 2 Samuel 7. Those of you who are uh, visiting with us this morning, uh, guests with us, uh, let me just welcome you and say that we're very glad that you're here with us today. Uh, if, um, if you don't mind, we'd love to be able to get in contact with you and, and uh, uh, maintain contact with you. If you could, inside your worship guide is a little, uh, little uh, tear-off sheet there, a little visitor card. If you would uh, fill that out with some uh, pertinent information, helpful contact information for us, we'd love to be uh, in touch with you, catch up with you, and uh, uh, know how we can uh, minister to you and to your family uh, in, in the future, in the coming days, maybe you're looking for a church home, that's a great way for you to let us know, and uh, we can uh, uh, speak with you about that. As Danny said, we've been looking at this December, uh, the various covenants that God makes to and with his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. We've looked at covenants with Noah, Abraham, uh, with the people of Israel at Sinai, and now today we turn our attention to a covenant that the Lord makes with David, King Of Israel, as we begin today and uh, and and look forward to what God's word has for us, I would uh, like us to do so by reviewing the course of the covenants that we've looked at to this point. Uh, Three weeks ago, we began by looking at the first covenant that God makes in the course of Scripture in the Old Testament, there with Noah after the flood. Uh, Noah and his family come out of the ark and God makes with him a a covenant of preservation. And it's not just a covenant of preservation by by which God will not uh, destroy the world again by flood. It's not just a covenant for Noah and his family, but for all the earth. It's a covenant of preservation to the whole world so that God could ultimately, as we saw, save humanity from the sin that caused that devastating flood in the first place, so that God could remake the world for those that he would redeem. We saw there in that covenant with Noah that Jesus, uh, God's son, is born into this preserved world, the world that continues to be preserved by the covenant that God made with Noah to bring forgiveness of sins to those who would trust him. And then two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the individual of Abraham and the covenant, the promise that God makes there with Abraham, a covenant of blessing to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the father of many nations and a blessing to all of the nations of the world. We saw that week as we looked forward from the Old Testament to the New, that Jesus is that offspring of Abraham, that son of Abraham, who by his death and resurrection provides a salvation that is for all people, that is for people of all nations. Then last week we looked at the covenant at Sinai, the promise-based relationship that God makes with his people Israel at Sinai. We saw that the covenant at Sinai is a covenant of holiness to the people of Israel who are to be God's representative people in the world uh, throughout the course of the Old Testament. We saw also last week as we looked forward to the New Testament and to Jesus... We saw Jesus, who is the only God-man. He's fully God, fully man, born as a part of Israel, a son of Israel. And unlike all the nation of Israel before him, he lives in perfect obedience to God's law that was given at Sinai. He fulfills every part of it. And then, not only does he fulfill the law, live perfectly, but Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of others as a perfect holy sacrifice for their forgiveness and for their peace with God. I would ask you to notice through the covenants in their order, the narrowing scope of God's covenant representative. That is the, the human party, the human person, the, the human, the, the group of humans involved in the covenant. We begin with, with Noah, right? And, and God makes this promise with Noah and through Noah to the rest of the world. So we have one man who is the representative of the entire world and all of humanity after him. And then we move to Abraham. God makes a promise with this man who is who's a son of of Noah, not a direct son, but in the lineage of Noah. And he makes this promise uh, to Abraham that Abraham will be a blessing to all of the nations. He will be the father of many nations. He'll be the father of the people of Israel. And then at Sinai, God makes a covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. A specific nation that God has chosen as his representative people in the world. So the scope of of God's representative, his covenant representatives in the Old Testament, it begins to narrow. It gets more specific. But notice also at the same time, even as the representative uh, becomes more specific and, and, and the group which he represents becomes more narrow, the impact of the covenants, the application of the promises that God makes and the implications of the promises that God makes to these people never narrows. It is always global in its scope. So God with Noah, Noah as a representative of all humanity makes a promise that God makes a promise to to Noah that all humanity will continue to live in this preserved world. There's not a certain special kind of people that will get to live in the world as we know it right now. God will preserve it for all humanity. With Abraham, God promises to bless all of the nations of the earth through him. Not just some, not just one or two, all of the nations and with Moses and the people at Sinai, uh, the the people of Israel at Sinai, God promises to them and intends that through them all of the world will have, have a representative of God to them. Israel is to be a representative people to the world, a kingdom of priests between God and the nations of the world. So while God's uh, uh, the scope of His representative is getting narrow, the, the the people that His covenant parties represent is getting narrower. The blessing remains global. And so now today we come to the fourth of these covenants we see in the Old Testament, these promise-based relationships that God makes with his people. A covenant that God makes with David, who in his day was king of Israel, representative of the people and the head of the royal line of the people Israel. This covenant with David that we see is a covenant of kingdom. Right. Uh, Noah's covenant is a covenant of preservation. Abraham's is a covenant of blessing. The covenant with Israel at Sinai is a covenant of holiness. This covenant with David is a covenant of a kingdom. A kingdom that will display God's desire uh, to establish his kingdom forever in the world. Now, as we come to 2 Samuel, we're going to be looking primarily at verses 8 through 17. But verses 1 through 7 are also important for us this morning. What we find in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 7, is is this. David has ascended to the throne of Israel. Uh, Saul, who was the king before him, who uh, literally lost his mind and kind of went crazy, has been uh, displaced by God, and, and David has been put in his place. Now, there was a lot of war and conflict between the two leading up to that, but now God's king, David, David is sitting on the throne. He has rest from his enemies all around. Uh, he's not presently at war here in Second Samuel 7. Uh, and he can finally uh, uh, just rest as, as king. The Ark of the Covenant has been brought back into Jerusalem. It's been brought back from when it was taken in captivity by the Philistines. It's been brought back now to Jerusalem. And the people of Israel seem to be whole again. And so in Second Samuel 7, verse, verses 1 and, and 2 and 3, we see David uh, sitting there on his throne at rest as king saying, I, I live in this amazing palace. With, built with, with cedar and, and marble, and it's just a wonderful place. But God's, uh, the, the, the Ark of, God, of the Covenant is still in a tent. It was still in the sort of temporary uh, tabernacle that Israel had constructed during the wilderness period that we read about in Exodus and in Numbers. And David says, look, I, I want to build a house for God. I'll build a temple for the Lord. And David's sort of uh, um, uh, advisor and, and prophet, Nathan, Says to David, That's a great idea, David. You go ahead and, and do all that you want to do. The Lord is with you. But that night, the Lord appears to Nathan, the prophet, in a vision. And he says this to him in 2 Samuel 7, verse 5. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Remember, David just said, I want to build a house for the Lord. Nathan said, go for it. Do, Do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. This is what the Lord says to Nathan that night. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God appears to Nathan in the night, Nathan, who just told David, yeah, go build God a temple. And God says to Nathan, did I ever ask you to do that? Did I ever ask David to do that? No, I didn't. And then God goes on in verses 8 through 17 to give the the covenant, the promise-based relationship, the promise that he's going to, to give to David in these verses. And as we read 8 through 17, I ask you to stand with me as we read God's word. God continuing in this vision to Nathan says this in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. God bless the reading of this word. You can be seated. David sitting on his throne, looking at the palace that he lives in, looks around and says, and sees the, the tent, the temporary tent that the Ark of the Covenant of God is in. He says, I need to build God a house. And Nathan says, the prophet writes, says, go ahead, do all that you want. And then in that vision that night, the Lord appears to Nathan says, I never asked David to do this, but here's what I'm going to do. David won't build me a house, but here's what I'll do. I'll build him a house. And in this, uh, in this passage, we have the giving of this covenant of the kingdom. The covenant of the kingdom that God makes to David. Now, that word covenant is not used in this passage. You probably noticed that. But if you were to turn to Psalm chapter 89, you would find there David writing in this song to the Lord covenant language. And he even says there in Psalm 89 3 that the Lord had made a covenant with his servant David. So throughout Israel's history and David himself and all those that would follow understand what's happening in 2 Samuel 7 to be a covenant that God makes with him, a covenant of a kingdom. And this covenant has... uh, several different specific parts to it. First of all, in verse 11, we see that God will give to David a dynasty. He will make of David a Davidic dynasty. David wants to build a temple for the Lord. He wants to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord is going to build a house for David. Literally, God says, I will establish your family as a royal one. I will establish a house for you, a dynasty for you. Though David wants to make a permanent dwelling place for the Lord, God promises to David to make of him a permanent kingdom. There's a play on words there between house, meaning a place to live in, and house, meaning a a dynasty, a a household name, a a royal line. And God says, I'm going to do better for you than just give you a place to live. I'm going to give you a reputation and a kingdom forever. Which leads to the second part of this promise. That God will give to David offspring, that is children, heirs to the throne, and a kingdom forever. An everlasting kingdom. This we see in verses 12 through 16 of the passage we just read. And as part of that, we see, particularly regarding the offspring aspect of it, right? David can't have a kingdom forever if he doesn't have sons to reign on the throne, to sit on the throne. So God will give to uh, David a son who will reign in his place after David dies. And this will be a son who will build God a house. David wants to build a temple for the Lord. God says, I'll build a dynasty for you, but your son will build a house for me. In verse 13, there the Lord says, he shall establish a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know that following David's reign, his son Solomon will take the throne, and Solomon will build a temple. For the Lord, actually, a magnificent temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We don't have photographs of it, or uh, it doesn't remain today. It was destroyed uh, around 600 or so BC. Uh, was rebuilt uh, uh, several years later, about uh, 70 or 80 years later, and then that second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So we don't have it in existence. But by all accounts, biblically and uh, from other places, we know that it was a magnificent place. So God will give to David offspring, a son who will build a temple for the Lord. But also God will give to David a son who will have God for a father. Verse 14. God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of, uh, and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. The son that David has that will rule on his throne will will be as a son to God. He will be disciplined by God when he disobeys, when he breaks the law that was given to Moses and to the Israelites at Sinai. And so when David's descendant, when his son sits on the throne and disobeys God's law, he'll be disciplined. And we see this happening in David's life and in Solomon's life and in the lives of the kings that would sit on the throne later all throughout the Old Testament. David himself experiences the discipline of the Lord after he commits adultery with Bathsheba. The child that they conceived together dies and the sword never leaves David's house. That is to say, he is constantly afflicted by death and war and trouble because of his sin. Even David's own son, Solomon, will experience the discipline of the Lord after he takes for himself many wives from the surrounding nations, uh, nations surrounding Israel, and begins to incorporate the worship of their false gods in the temple of the Lord. Solomon's discipline would impact the entire nation of Israel for the next 500 years and would plunge them into division and captivity and, and geopolitical irrelevance. The direct a descendant of David who, who sits on his throne right after David dies, will send the kingdom of Israel into, into near ruin because of his disobedience. The Lord disciplines him and the people after him. The kingdom will be divided. They'll be conquered by uh, a, a warring nation, surrounding nations of Assyria, and then later Babylon. They'll be sent into exile. There will hardly be a people of Israel at all. God will discipline the son that comes. When he disobeys, but also you'll see in verse 15 that God promises to love this descendant of David. He's going to give David offspring He's going to give him a kingdom forever, but he's also going to and he's, he's going to be like a father to his son discipline him when he deserves discipline, but he'll keep his love for him forever. So even though God will discipline the son of David, Solomon, and the the kings that will follow, he will never stop loving or ever stop being faithful to him and to his people Israel, not because they deserve it, but for the promise that God has made. And this we see as God continues to care for and and preserve Israel as a people, even though they've been conquered, even though they've been divided as a kingdom, even though they've been taken into captivity, God continues to love his people and preserve his people through it. Because he intends to give to David and to his offspring a kingdom that will not end. And this we see in verses 12, 13, and 16. A promise of a kingdom that will never go away. That's a big promise for God to make to a king. But the problem is, even beginning with his son Solomon, the kingdom begins to fall apart. Now, Israel was kind of at its heyday in Solomon's day, but after Solomon dies, there's division. Or the kingdom splits into north and south. You have a northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, uh, Solomon's son reigns on the throne in Judah, but another man is put on the throne uh, in Israel to rule them. And the kingdom is divided and constantly fighting with each other until they're ultimately conquered by the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians. So this promise of a kingdom that will not end seems to come up short relatively quickly... In Israel's history, all of a sudden now the kingdom's divided and in a very short time there's no kingdom at all. So God, what are you doing? And during that period when the kingdom's divided and, and other nations are coming in and, and beginning to, uh, to conquer Israel and then later the southern kingdom of Judah and take them off into captivity, there begins to, to, to be this growing expectation for a king. The people of Israel remember the promise that God made to David for, uh, that he'll give him a kingdom that will last forever. But they're looking around and there is no kingdom. So around 740 BC, we hear from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, these words. Prophecy where he says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is about 200 years into their uh, division as a kingdom. And, and uh, about 60 or, or 70 years before be, uh, the northern kingdom will be conquered by the Assyrians already expectation for a king that will come. Prophecy of a king that will come, that will reign like David. Then, uh, sometime between 620 B.C. and 587 B.C., the prophet Jeremiah declares this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. So in Jeremiah 23, again, this a few years further into Israel's history, this expectation for a king who will come to a divided kingdom, a broken kingdom, a conquered kingdom to establish it forever. And then sometime between 597 and 560 BC, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34, 15 and 16, and then in 23 and 24 says this. This is the Lord speaking through his prophet Ezekiel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Verse 23 of Ezekiel 34. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now by this time, David is long dead. David's been dead for almost 500 years speaking of a son of David, right? One who comes in David's line. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So in 2 Samuel 7, God makes this promise to David, this covenant with David, to give him offspring and a kingdom forever. But shortly after David, only 40 years after David's death, The kingdom is broken. It's in tatters. And for the next uh, 500 years, close to a thousand years, even after that, the kingdom will never quite be the same. There won't ever be a king that rules like David or Solomon ruled. And so there's this expectation for something more. Expectation for God to make good on his promise to send a king who will reign forever. Now, as we understand and look at the promise that God makes to David in the Old Testament, the significance of that for us today, particularly in the Old Testament, is this, that the covenant of David's kingdom, of the Davidic kingdom, shows the Lord's perfect love and faithfulness to his people. That's really what it, what it reveals about God, that he loves and is faithful to his people. So much so, he's so loving and so faithful that even through their disobedience, the Lord will continue to send prophets to them to turn their hearts back to the Lord. So much so is he faithful and loving to Israel and to his promise of of an eternal king that God endures. He wades through and is patient with the sin of uh, the many people in Israel through the period after Solomon for the sake of those of the few who are faithful to the Lord. God never in this whole period of rebellion and apostasy by the people of Israel ever turns his back on them or writes them off completely. He never declares that he's going to start over with another people. He endures lovingly, faithfully with his people for the sake of the promises that he has made. To David, to Abraham, to Noah, to the people of Israel. And for the glory of his own name, the Lord not only preserves a rebellious people, even through their being conquered, even through being taken away in captivity, but he continually beckons them to repent and to return to him. This constant call of God saying, repent, turn back to me, I'll heal you, I'll, I'll fix you. Right, We'll be in relationship again is, is constant. That refrain is constant throughout the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Now, some would say, I just can't believe in the God of the Old Testament. God of the Old Testament is so violent. He's so angry. People are always dying in the Old Testament. I like Jesus a lot, but he's just loving, he's kind, he's gentle, he's patient, all those things. right? But for those people who say, I just can't believe in the God of the Old Testament because he's too violent, he's too angry. I would say you're not reading the Old Testament very clearly. Because God is not violent and angry. He's loving and patient and kind. Does he judge sin? Yes, absolutely. And rightly so. Sin deserves to be judged by a righteous God. But even when his own people, Israel, sin, when they, when they turn from him and rebel against him, God doesn't destroy them. He doesn't wipe them off, off of the map. He, he punishes them. He disciplines them. But he also preserves them in love and faithfulness for the promises that he's made. God is infinitely gracious in the Old Testament. He never gives to the people for their sin exactly what they deserve. The covenant of the Davidic kingdom shows the Lord's perfect love and faithfulness to his people and also creates in the heart of Israel this desire for, this longing for a king who will reign like David. And so we get to the New Testament. We get to the, to the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we are introduced to Jesus, the covenant king. Jesus, the covenant king. Jesus, as covenant king, is a son of David. God promised to David offspring that would come after him, that would rule on the throne. And we read in uh, Matthew's gospel, the very first verse, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We read, and then in uh, verse 6 of the the same gospel, Matthew 1, verse 6, uh, we, we go through all of the, the lineage, beginning with, uh, starting with Abraham and moving on down. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, so on and so forth. We get to verse 5. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David, the king. Jesus is in the line of the king. He's a son of David. He's an heir to the throne. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1-3, through three, as Paul is writing to the church in Rome, There we read these verses. Romans 1 verses 1 through 3. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his uh, prophets in the holy scriptures, and concerning his son, who who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, and by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You can read through the sermons that are delivered in Acts by Peter in Acts 2 and Stephen in Acts 7. These references to Jesus, the son of David, the one who's an heir to the throne. Jesus, the covenant king, comes in the line of David. He's a son of David, but, and better so, he is also the son of God. It's not just a son of man, but he's also the son of God. He's fully human and fully God all at the same time. We read from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 where Isaiah gives us prophecy of, of a child who will be born. Uh, who will have the government on his shoulders. Whose name will be everlasting father and prince of peace and mighty God. And the end of his kingdom. There, there will be no end to his kingdom. In Luke chapter 1 verses 30 and 33. We have a picture. We know exactly who this child is to be born. As the angel speaks to Mary, the angel Gabriel speaks to Mary, announcing to her what will happen in the coming days and months. Angel says in Luke chapter one, verse 30, the angel says to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his and of his kingdom. There will be no end. All throughout the New Testament, we have this reference to Jesus being not only the son of David, not only son in the line of David, but also the son of God. The very, uh, the very essence of God, the very substance of God, the second and eternal person of God, the son made flesh in Jesus and Jesus as the son of God fulfills the promises that God makes to the offspring of David. Remember, God said to David, I will give to you a son. I'll be to him a father. I'll discipline him when he commits iniquity, but my steadfast love will never leave. Well, Jesus is disciplined. disciplined. Jesus, though he's he's born in a manger, but but not just there to be adored and to be coddled, but but to grow into a man and to live a life without sin, to die in the place of sinners. Jesus is disciplined, but not for his own iniquity, friends. Jesus is disciplined for our sins. Jesus dies on the cross because of your rebellion against God, my rebellion against God. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 and 4. This is a passage from the prophet Isaiah that's often called the suffering servant passage, which speaks about the servant of God who, who will come to, to save and to give, bring forgiveness to the people of Israel. Isaiah chapter 53 verses three and four says as he was despised and rejected by men, speaking of the servant of God, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He is disciplined in the place of others. As, uh, the, uh, as Isaiah goes on in verse 5, he says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Jesus is disciplined as a son of God, but not for his own sins, friends, for the sins of, of, of yours and, and mine. He's disciplined by God, but he's also loved by God. God says to his servant David, I'll, I'll bring you offspring. I'll, I'll establish his kingdom forever. Uh, I will discipline him. For his iniquity, but I'll also by my steadfast love, will never leave him. And so in that same passage in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant," this is a prophecy 700 years before Jesus is born, and before Jesus would die, we read this in Isaiah 53: 10 through 12. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see what's going on in those verses? Though this suffering servant, this one who would come, this son of God and son of David would come to to be punished for your sins and for mine, God will reward him with an eternal reward. He will see his offspring. He will see his his spiritual offspring, Jesus will. He'll have a, a portion with the many. He'll divide the spoil uh, that, that the Lord gives to him, right? Because he's poured out his soul unto death. Jesus, for his death in our place, will be rewarded by God with steadfast love and exaltation to a place of perfect and eternal authority. He'll be disciplined in the place of sinners, but he is eternally loved by God. Jesus is the covenant king, is son of David, he's son of God, and he's the builder of a better temple, God promised to David that his son would build for the Lord a house for his name, a temple. And Solomon did build a temple, a beautiful one. But Jesus builds a better temple. Let me put it this way. Jesus is a better temple. If we turn to the gospel of John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 21 We read this, the Jews said to him, said to Jesus, what sign do you do to show us, uh, what sign do you show us, excuse me, for doing these things? Now, Jesus has just gone into the temple. He's overturned the tables of the money changers because they were profiting off of the backs of the the poor who were just trying to uh, uh, make uh, sacrifices in the temple. They were profiting off of people's worship. Jesus goes in and clears out the temple, uh, calling it a, a den of robbers. And so the Jews come to him and they say, what sign do you do? Uh, to show us for doing these things Jesus said destroy this temple And in three days I will raise it up So Jesus here at this one, is standing In the second temple Herod's temple Some would call it it's a beautiful temple In its own right as well It was the center of Jewish worship And the presence and the place of the presence Of God in Israel And Jesus just said destroy This temple and I'll build it again in three days The Jews who hear, them, hear him Say this think That he is blaspheming the temple That he's speaking against this place of worship. That he's insulting the the very place that houses the presence of God. And they are ready to kill him. In verse 20 of John chapter 2, the Jews then said, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? And the apostle John gives us some commentary here saying in verse 21, But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The tabernacle... Uh, During the time of Numbers and Deuteronomy, leading all the way up until the building of the temple, this tent that housed the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God's presence resided. And then the temple was as well. But when Jesus is born, the fullness of God resides in human flesh, not in a temple built with hands, but in a body put together by God. Jesus says, destroy this temple. He's pointing to himself, right? Not literally, but that's what figuratively would destroy this temple. And I'll raise it up again in three days. At the end of his life, Romans and Jews would try to destroy his temple. They would destroy. They would kill his body. But three days later, he rose that body again from the dead. Jesus not, is not just a better temple. He's the perfect residing place of God in flesh. But he also builds a better temple. A temple that, that's not made with, with uh, stones of, of marble and beams of cedar. But a temple that is made of living flesh. Of individuals. Of people who have been re- redeemed by God and for his purposes. We saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when we were in our series in 1 Peter earlier... This Peter says this as you come to him, as you come to Christ, a living stone who is rejected by men. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says you yourselves like living stones are being built up. To a spiritual house. Around Jesus who is the chief cornerstone. Friends there is a better temple today. And it's not a temple that sits on a mountain in Jerusalem. The temple of the living God. Is the body of believers that we call the church. All around the world. uh, of which this gathering this morning is a representative. We're one representative of the global church here this morning. We are one representative of the temple of God in which he resides. How can that be so? Well, we know that, that that is true because as each person, as each person places faith in Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, crucified for their sins, resurrected from the dead, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the triune God, lives in the hearts of men. His dwelling place is with us. He lives within you, Christian. You are a stone of a better temple that Jesus is building. Jesus, the covenant king, is the son of David. He's the son of God. He's the builder of a better temple. And, friends, he is a king forever. God promises to David to give him a kingdom that will never end. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, I want to, it's a longer passage, but I want to read this whole thing because it's, I think it's just so important and so pertinent to us. This is how the author of the book of the, the letter uh, to the Hebrews in the New Testament, this is how he begins his, his, his letter. After making purification for sins, that's the author of Hebrews' way of speaking about his crucifixion and resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? It's a rhetorical question, the answer is none. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Part of the covenant that God makes with David. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels, uh, he he makes his angels uh, winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, get get this, of the son, God says, the father says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The author of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament begins his letter by saying, Jesus is the eternal king of God, son of David, on a throne forever. What this means is that Jesus reigns over a kingdom that's not a a kingdom of flesh and bone. It's not a geopolitical kingdom. Jesus reigns over a, a cosmic kingdom, a universal kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. A kingdom to which all other kings and all other kingdoms submit themselves. He is king of kings and lord of lords. It's not just like a president of the United States or the queen of Britain. It's better than that. He's the king that they submit to. He's the king that has put them in their places. He's the king who has created the universe and holds the universe together. And his kingdom will never end. Now, the significance of the promise that God makes to David in the Old Testament is that God's love and faithfulness will never end for his people. But as we see Jesus, the covenant king, the one who answers all of the promises, the one who fulfills all of the promises to David in the New Testament, there's a, there's a, a New Testament, a, a sort of Christological, if you will, significance. And that is this, that at Christmas, 2,000 years ago, God's covenant king was born. Born a baby in a stable in a little town called Bethlehem. And at his birth, God's covenant king brought God's eternal kingdom to the earth. In Jesus, not not just his birth, but also his life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus reveals and displays to us God's perfect love and faithfulness, not just to Israel, but friends, to the world. Jesus is born. He lives a perfect life, dies, and is raised again from the dead for your salvation to show you, friend, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, that God loves you you yeah. and that god has sent his son king of the universe to save you from your sin friends this morning knowing that the infant jesus born at christmas is god's eternal chosen perfect king today and tomorrow i i implore you to celebrate christmas rightly By giving your life over to the saving rule of Christ in your heart. At Christmas we say Jesus is the son of David. And by saying he's the son of David we're saying he's king. He's king. And recognizing a king means recognizing a king's authority. And recognizing a king's authority requires submitting to his rule and to his reign. That's hard for us who are, who, who are Americans and have lived as Americans our entire lives. We, we don't understand kingship and monarchy as well as uh, you know, our friends across the pond and in other parts of the world do. We elect our leaders and we submit to them for as long as their term uh, goes. And then if we decide we don't want to submit to them anymore, we vote in another leader, right? But in a monarchy, that doesn't work. A king is on the throne until he dies, and his kingdom submits to him until his death. Jesus is a king forever. And he reigns on a throne that will never end. Friends, there's, there's no... When, if you're going to say today that Jesus is king, he's son of David, king, born in, born in Bethlehem, died on the cross, raised from the dead, you can't not submit your life to him. If you do not submit your life to him, you're in rebellion against the king. If you're not submitting to his rule and to his reign, you are a traitor against the king. And friends, that's all of us in our sin. We all start out as traitors against the king. We all start out wanting to do things our own way. Be the the boss of our own lives. Be the, the maker of our own morality. Be king for ourselves. But Recognizing Jesus as king at Christmas means recognizing his authority and submitting to it. If you want to be a citizen of his kingdom, you submit to his reign, to his rule, to his authority. Recognizing Jesus as king at Christmas is not done by cooing over a rosy-cheeked infant in a manger, but by bending your knee in worship, reverence, and surrender to Christ's sovereign control of the universe and to his uniqueness as savior of your soul. Friends, that's how we celebrate Christmas, rightly. By recognizing the king. And submitting our lives to him, and not submitting our lives to him because he's a he's a despot and and, and if we don't, then then we we're you know we're the subject of his wrath and all these. We don't submit our lives to him out of fear, we submit our lives to him out of joy and out of love for the fact that he gave his life so your sins can be forgiven, so you can be right with the God who created you, so that you can enjoy eternal life forever in the presence of the King. Amen. Friends, there's no better king to surrender to. In this life or any other, there is no other king at Christmas, but King Jesus, and we worship him rightly. We celebrate the season rightly by submitting to God's covenant king, his own son, God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.